I, I think I've, I'd always wanted to be a writer in some way, right? Mm. I, when I was a little kid, I wrote short stories. Then when I was a teenager, I, uh, I wanted to write music. Be a, you know, I really wanted to be Elvis Costello or John Lennon. Um, <laughs> in America, radio plays a very strange thing, very rare thing. Whereas, say, in the UK, it's very common. And to me, one of the big issues in, I think, the world, certainly the Western world, certainly in America, is loneliness. Anna Aguilera. Today we're talking to Jack Canfora. John Lawrence, Jack Canfora, is an award-winning American playwright, actor, musician and teacher. After receiving his dramatic training at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, he began his career as an actor in regional theatre, working mostly in Shakespearean roles such as Mercutio and Macbeth. He's been hailed by the Associated Press as white-hot entertainment for his off-Broadway plays, including Poetic Licence, Place Setting and Jericho, a New York Times critic's pick. He was nominated along with Edward Albee, Elaine May and Teresa Rebeck for the Newark Star Ledger's Best Play in 2007. Jack is the recipient of two Edgerton Playwriting Awards for Jericho in 2010 and The Source 2018. He won the 2016 Webby Award for Best Writing in a Web Series and Jack is also the Artistic Director of New Normal Rep. Jack, welcome to the show. Hi. So tell us a little bit before we get into your career and everything. How how what was the path that led you to the industry and you becoming a, a playwright and an actor and a teacher? Yeah, well, I mean, I it was funny because growing up, I acted in you know school plays and things like that, and I really enjoyed it. And it was really more for the sense of well, it was twofold. It, it was for the sense of community and friends that I that I really was drawn to it. And also, um, I really enjoyed performing. And but it was something something that I did into college and I kept on thinking it would fall away at some point, but it didn't. And, um, and so I studied and I really became enamored with, um, Shakespearean acting. I really studied that pretty hard. Um, and around the same time I was in my mid twenties, uh, I started writing some sketch comedy with some friends and performing a sketch comedy. And then I was going to become a father. And so I needed a real job. So quote unquote, and so I couldn't really go auditioning anymore. Um, and, but I could keep writing. And so that, then we said, well, let me see if I can try and write plays. And, you know, cause I've been in, a, in enough of them that I should have some sense of the form. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate. The first full length one I wrote actually got produced. And from there on, you know, um, um, I, you know, I've been, you know, fairly lucky. And so it just seemed like the path I should follow. I was, I actually had more, was having more, um, uh, success with that and with acting. Mm. How did you cultivate that writing? You said because you've done a lot of drama, but that doesn't necessarily translate into, you know, the ability right. to write a good narrative. That's very true. It's very true. Now, I, I think I've, I'd always wanted to be a writer in some way, right? Mm. I, when I was a little kid, I wrote short stories. Then when I was a teenager, I, uh, I wanted to write music, be a, you know, I really wanted to be Elvis Costello or John Lennon. Um, <laughs> both of those roles were filled. And, uh, and so, but I, but I really always knew I was going to write in some capacity. And so, in fact, the acting thing was more of an unusual turn for me to take than, um, than writing in some, in, in some ways. And so it sort of made sense. And I tried writing plays because that felt more realistic to me because I'd, I'd been in theaters. And so I, you know, I thought, well, a person can write a play. I suppose writing like a screenplay means, means getting a movie made, which seemed sort of beyond 
you know, might as well have been like, why don't you fly to Jupiter? You know, so I, you know, it was, uh, it seemed very um, grand to try and do that. And so mm-hmm. it actually plays suit me better than screenplays in a lot of ways because my, I, plays are really sort of heavy with language and that's sometimes problematic in a screenplay. And how do you get into, I mean, it's not hard to get into Shakespearean roles, but get enamored by them. That's interesting, at least to me. Yeah. I, you know, I, I never, unlike a lot of kids in high school and stuff, I never minded Shakespeare. I liked him well enough, um, but he didn't do anything for me. But I saw when I was pretty young, it was my first year of college, maybe, uh, maybe my second, I saw a movie by Kenneth Branagh. I saw his, Henry, his version of Henry V. Mm-hmm. And it just excited me in a way that very few things have, you know, excited me artistically. And so I, uh, I really said, well, that's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And so I really spent the next few years really chasing that and studying for that. And, you know, I was getting some work, but in, you know, small theater, certainly, but I, it was mostly Shakespeare. When I, whenever I was, whenever I was getting work, it was generally Shakespeare. And the, it's interesting because uh, I, I, like you said, Shakespeare is, is an interesting sort of the pathway to follow and get into but when you yeah. see somebody do it well and uh, act it well I mean it changes everything for you I think Shakespeare and and when you've like you said Kenneth Brenner's versions or if you've seen a great um, uh, execution of the play where it, mm. the language starts to become normal to you if people are acting it well I feel do you feel I completely agree in fact when I used to teach Shakespeare right we teach in high school in what we call in America high school, 11th and 12th grade, just like 16 and 17 year olds, 18 year olds. I would never have them read the play. I would find a really good production and show them a scene. And then we'd go through it because there's a skill and technique to speaking Shakespeare correctly. Otherwise it becomes gobbledygook. It's like, to me, it would be, you know, a lot of teachers would just have the students, you know, these really, really bored 15 year olds reading out loud and I couldn't understand anything if I relied on a bored 15-year-old to read it out loud. It's like giving, like trying to get an appreciation of Mozart and say, here, we're going to hand it to these fourth grade violinists and um, we're going to really enjoy the, the, the magic of Mozart's melodies. It's not fair to it, you know? So that's my two cents on Shakespeare, uh, on teaching Shakespeare. But I completely agree because you're right, because if it's done well, um, you really basically understand it. And it's sort of like, it, you know, it is in some ways a different language, but... You know, I would tell them, and this is true, like 70% of the language is exactly modern. But what happens is we get stuck on the bits that we don't know. And then like, we've oh wait, two lanes, two more lines have gone by. And so it becomes very difficult. And I think it's about, you know, the, the best actors tend to like hit the line word you need to hit. And you're not going to get every word necessarily, but that's okay. You're going to get the gist of it. And the poetry is going to pop that way, I think. So I guess I'm here to say that Shakespeare was good. If we, there's one takeaway from this podcast that Shakespeare was a good playwright. It's a hell of a one. Absolutely. What mm. makes his stories good and his characters good? Well, you know, I think his story, most of his stories, of course, were stolen. You know, they were like, um, you know, uh, they were sort of, sort of common stories. Like there were millions of versions of Hamlet or Julius Caesar. Um, I think his, I think plotting isn't really his strength. That's not to say that he, he didn't do things very brilliantly with plot. But to me, the two things that are that stand out to, to me are his, his psychological insight and his, uh, and of course, his language too. Um, you take a, a play like you know um, Macbeth, um, and the psychological, like his un- insight into the way people behave and what um, compromises they make that really how that can haunt them, 
and, and how they are haunted um, really shows to me a, a real wisdom and insight to human nature. I mean, Hamlet to me is, that's the closest thing I've encountered that explains the human condition. You know, like John Gilgood said, the role of Hamlet basically is, um, explain, basically explains what it means to be human. Uh, because there's not a single, uh, there's almost no emotion or conflict that Hamlet doesn't have a viewpoint on. Um, and then when he, then of course you add to the amazing language um, that is, you know, poetic. I mean, they called them dramatic poets back in those days, not playwrights. And um, I feel like I'm getting really pedantic really fast, but yeah, but that to me is the, um, that to me is the allure of Shakespeare is the psychological insight. Because if you, you know, there are a hundred Julius Caesars, you know, or I'm exaggerating, but there are a bunch of Julius Caesar plays, but Shakespeare's Julius Caesar play gave Brutus real complexity and, um, and ambiguity and doubt and things like that. And most characters, if you look at the old, older plays at that time, and why would you, many of the other writers, uh, there was not, they were less three-dimensional in many cases. That's interesting. And and so just to go back to your career uh, and, and, and things like that, you've, you've got a, a company, an online theatre company called New Normal Rep, right? Mm. So tell, tell us what this is and, and how that came about. Well, it came about, uh, it is an online theater company, as you say, it came about during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, America shut down in, in March. And by April, early April, I was getting a little stir crazy. And so I reached out to some friends of mine, um, uh, most of whom were actors, and said, well, you know, why don't we just meet once a week on Zoom and read a play? It can be any play. Anyone can choose it. Anyone can play any role they want. And it was and a lot of people really got into that. And it was uh, it was a nice little ritual. Like every Wednesday night, we'd meet and we'd have a play, we'd have parts. And and it was in part, I think, to keep all of our muscles from atrophying too much. But also, really, it's just an excuse to sort of see each other and, you know, and, and hang out. Uh, my, my, my friend Eleanor Handley, who's um, a company member, um, she described it as like we built a little sort of campfire in the dark uh, of that time. And um, after a while, we realized we had a really good makings of a really strong company. And so we, um, we did you know, some fundraising. We got a little bit of money. And um, at that time, if you remember, there were people doing a lot of readings online. Um, but they, they were pretty primitive because no one knew it. You know, it was a brand new medium. And um, we thought, well, we, we can maybe make this medium worthwhile uh, rather than just sort of clunkily reading from music stands, you know, um, in the Zoom, in, every, in everyone's apartment. And so we really worked and played with the sort of the aesthetics. And so we <clears throat> we came up with a system or an aesthetic, I guess, for lack of a less pompous word, where um, it would look like everyone, although we recorded separate, in separate places, obviously, during the pandemic, but it looked like we were all in the same room. And um, the the one concession we made is that we... Um, if the actors would do would speak directly into the camera like you and I are doing now. Um, and what a lot of people said when they saw the saw it, they said they felt like they were in the scene because it's, it's a new angle uh, mm-hmm. from which to see it. And, you know, it's not, we don't pretend it is theater. Obviously there's a lot of stuff about the theatrical experience that this doesn't capture, but it's a new medium. And I think it has a lot of, obviously it has a lot of drawbacks, but I think it has a lot of positives too. One of which is that, and this is really sort of our ethos is that it, is uh, giving theater or the or a theatrical experience. I mean, and we only produce plays as opposed to say like television scripts or screenplays. Um, and we do that uh, basically or almost for free. Um, 
And uh, as long as you have internet, you can get it. And I think one of the reasons why, in America anyway, theater is very much not on the radar of most people is that they don't have access to it. It's not, I mean, I mean, community theaters, but I mean, they don't have professional theaters uh, nearby. And um, even if they do, it's generally very expensive. In New York, it's incredibly expensive to go see a play. So we thought this is kind of revolutionary. And although obviously there are elements of theater that we can't do with this, there are elements that we can capture. And one of it is the intimacy um, that people in theaters feel. And in fact, if anything, this can be more intimate. Um, and, you know, of course, television and film can be incredibly intimate too, and often is, but it's intimate within the context we're watching that scene, whereas the people now are in this scene. And um, it also, we, it allows us to sort of privilege language and dialogue in a way that movies and TV really can't. So that's, that's what it has in common too with the uh, theatrical experience. So would you think the difference between, let's say, recorded theater or online theater or virtual, the virtual experience theater right. and film and TV relies mostly on language? Or where do you feel like the difference? I think so. I mean, I think there's a few things. I think there's a few things. I mean, to, I mean, first of all, I mean, and I'm speaking generally here, and I don't think I'm saying anything particularly um, insightful. But I think you know, like film is basically you're telling the story through pictures. You're telling a story through pictures, and I've heard people say that uh, describe dialogue in movies as a necessary evil. And if you look back, and it's getting more that way all the time. If you, if you watch movies in the '70s, let alone the '50s or '40s. So a lot more talking and a lot more static stuff. And now it's, you can go 10 minutes, almost literally 10 minutes in the movie and there'll be no talking. There'll be a lot of action, even in like a drama. So language is very much minimized. And I think it is to, to a lesser degree with, with television. I think, it, but in plays, it's language, but it's also the fact that usually, um, certainly modern plays, um, because of budget constraints in theaters, there's only a few characters and they don't necessarily move around from, You know, they don't go in the car to the restaurant and then out you know, to the bar. It becomes very difficult to do that. Um, and so there's a different uh, type of writing involved. And it's, it's kind of restricting in a way, but in a way that restriction is, you know, liberating in a way that some writers or poets will like write a sonnet or a particular or a villanelle or something like that has a specific stricture and says you have to do it in this way because it's an interesting challenge. There's also something to be said about accessibility to people who don't live in New York or live into places where, you know, they could join a theatre company. I think, you know, even though the pandemic is largely, you know, behind us, hopefully, uh, that uh, that this, this medium could also still be utilised to access people around the world that don't have that. And, and, and I still think there's, there's such opportunity there. Yeah, and that's exactly why we're still around. I mean, because I think that it's, it's, it would be a shame to have it go away. And, of course, we're not pretending that it's good. We don't think and we don't want it to, like, replace theatre. But it's a nice uh, adjunct to it. And, again, anyone who has internet access um, can basically watch our stuff. And then we have a YouTube page, which is all free. We have actually one of the – We had four full-length plays produced in our first season, and one of them is up on our YouTube page for free. You can watch it anytime you want. There's also smaller dramatic works. And so, yeah, we're very excited about the idea of, like, spreading it around. And, um, and we did also a, uh, a radio play, and we put it on a podcast platform, um, which is something that we're very excited about. And that is completely free. You go to whatever your local podcast, whatever your local, <laughs> your local, this is, this is or, you know, right. on the table podcastery, uh, you go there and, um, you know, you look up a uh, new normal rep and uh, the place name is step nine, number nine. 
And then it's a full radio play in eight episodes uh, completely for free. And so, um, again, we think it's great to have that, give that sort of accessibility. What, what happened in the lessons you, or go, go Sorry, ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, how is that? Um, how is the audio play on on a podcast platform being received? Is it is it well listened to? Is it people yeah people it? have yeah people have seemed to really like it. Um, we try to get the word out more. I mean, it, it has you know a lot of fair amount of people have listened to it. But um, in addition to just enjoying talking with you, um, one of the reasons I'm here is to try and you know get people to try and give that a listen. Um, we, we're proud of the product and we think it's a great, again, a great way of doing things. I know like, for example, in America, radio play is a very strange thing, very rare thing. Whereas say in the UK, it's very common. It never went away really. And so uh, we're trying to sort of really uh, take advantage of that medium as well, because it's, while it's not it's by no means free to produce, it's um, less, costs less money to produce than a um, full length um, streaming play. Uh, and so we can do more of those. Uh, and this play in particular, we thought was a good fit for this because there's, um, believe it or not, it, there's eight characters in it and eight characters in a play, like a non-musical, is considered a lot of characters these days because theaters are working under such tight budget constraints. I, mm. One of my plays, which I've been fortunate to have have a, a nice run in publication and... Um, But I've had theater companies come up to me and say, uh, we, we'd love to do the play, but can you make, can you cut a few characters? Which of course I can't. Uh, and it's only, and the, and the play only has six characters. So it's not like I have a cast of thousands. So you're asking earlier, like one of the differences between TV and, um, and film and, and theater, that's one of the differences. That's a big difference. It, there must be something to be said for that though, because the, the, the people are so into leading, listening to audio books. So why wouldn't they listen to audio plays, right? That's, if they, if they, that's what know, I keep was... saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and and people have started to do that a little bit more. Um, I know um, I know Audible, which is a company in America, has started to produce some of these uh, radio plays. Not that I want to, you know, <laughs> advertise for them as opposed to us. But, uh, yeah, there are definitely outlets in which you can find that. And, um, like I said, in the UK, you can find a lot of, uh, uh, productions of those sorts of things. A lot of radio plays. I just listened to one. It was a mystery comedy starring Bill Nye. Uh, and it was on BBC. So yeah, it's a very, it, it's a fun thing. It's a fun medium. Um, and we're, and again, I think it's just another way of getting, um, the concept of theater, Or theatrical works uh, on people's radar. I love that. I actually really do like radio plays, and uh, so oh, great! I'll, yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely listen to it. But it's uh, it's interesting to think about that idea, and and it is really hard to be able to transmit what you want and what you're trying to with your entire body when you only do it through the voice. Mm. Right, right, and for, so a writer like myself, radio plays are kind of like a natural medium because I really. Um, I, I'm really dialogue dependent. Uh, and so radio play even more so you, you can't, you really need to explain everything. And of course there's sound effects and stuff, but I mean, um, you know, so it sounds like it's taking place in a, in a world, but uh, yeah, language is the only thing you have to go on really. So um, to me, that's exciting as a writer. Mm. Mm -hmm. So your stuff is on YouTube and it's on a podcast. Um, yeah. 
And so how do people find that, just so we, we know while we're on that? Very topic. good question. Um, if you can, um, first of all, you can visit our website uh, at www.newnormalrep.org. Um, you can also go to any podcast platform and uh, and search New Normal Rep and Step 9, because the name of the play is Step 9. And uh, that's how you find the podcast. And go to YouTube and you type in New Normal Rep and our page should come up and uh, you'll have lots of different um, things to choose. And we have sketches. We have like very 10 minute, 10 minute plays, monologues. We have uh, Jericho, which is about a, a full length play. It's not about a full length play. It is a full length play. And when you, when you pick those plays, obviously, you know, a lot of the times plays are dependent on maybe what's happening on stage. Do you pick a, a text that is basically relies less on what the physical movements are? Or, and do, do you, do you describe things that happen if you can't? Or is it just the dialogue of the play? No, we make the, we make the adjustments. Like in the in the full streaming play, it's I mean there are visual things, but they're they're only visual things in the context that would be able to be come, put across in the streaming way. I have to say that our first season, for example, our plays the main things we were looking for plays was a sense of uh, different voices, diverse diverse voices, and um, just quality work. Uh, often they, they we wanted them to be new or underproduced. For example, Nilo Cruz. Who uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for his play Anna and the Tropics? Um, he had a play that he liked very much, but it wasn't being done as often as he would have liked. So he did that play, and he had um, you know we had some very well known actors in that one. I in this one because uh, it sounds a little uh, like narcissistic because the, a lot of the stuff that's up online happens to be my stuff, and the only reason that is is that I uh, I'm okay with the copyrights. <laughs> You know, like I don't have to pay me. So um, <laughs> we're going to try and get permission to get other plays up there too. Because we really want, we really do have a diversity of voices. Uh, but it so happens that the radio plays mine and Jericho is mine. But there's other stuff, I swear, by the really great writers. And uh, the majority of stuff isn't by me because that would be incredibly narcissistic, even by my standards. So. Hey, I mean, if you don't have to pay the writer, then it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I think my that's the that's the defining characteristic of most of my career. <laughs> I'll put it on because you don't have to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll pay you. Just stay here. <laughs> that's not very motivating. If I were writing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I've often joked that you know, being a playwright, wanting to be a playwright in America, is a little bit like growing up in the Sahara and wanting to be a downhill skier. You know, it's not. There's not that big a uh, an audience for it. But I, you know, luckily, I have been able uh, to make uh, some money in some of my plays. But you know, it's hard. And, and as a writer, you just want to get your stuff out there. It's not like being a novelist, right? Where when you write the novel, obviously, you want people to read it. But when you've written an album, you're done. It is a complete work, a whole thing. Uh, whereas in a play, it's not really finished until it's produced. You know, the play is is the blueprint, but you know, the text isn't the event. You know, um, so you really want these things to be done. And since the first of all, the theater is always very difficult to get stuff produced. But and I've been lucky that I have gotten a fair amount of stuff produced. But since the pandemic, theater in America in particular has really just taken a the body blow economically. Mm. It's very hard to get things put out there. One of the things New Normal Rep does too that we're very proud of is we do a lot of readings and these readings are completely free. And these are for writers who are trying to develop new work um, and many of whom wouldn't be able to have the work 
heard by, you know, read by professional actors. And as, as a playwright, I've never met a playwright who doesn't insist on wanting to hear their work because it is such a game-changing proposition. Things do change from the page to the stage, so to speak. And so I know for myself, when I hear something for the first time that I've written, inevitably I find that I'm repeating myself in a lot of places. And so, but, and you'd think I'd be able to pick that out just reading it, but it's much clearer when um, you hear it being read out loud. And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Out Live podcast is proud to be sponsored by Clearcom. Clearcom is the leader in voice communications since 1968 for theatre and the performing arts. When the show must go on, Clearcom is there to keep the team on cue. You can find them at clearcom.com. Go check them out. I'd love to know your thoughts on the onset of AI in the industry and writing. Because it terrifies you. You know, I, I, first of all, I'm not an expert on that at all, but um, it does actually scare me. I mean, I happen to be a very big Beatles fan. And I just, and I just the other day heard a song that was, it, it, it's an actual Beatles song. Actually, it's a Paul McCartney solo song that he wrote about 10 years ago. And it, it was fine. It's a catchy little tune. But the guy did it with, he, I don't know how, obviously, but with AI, McCartney's voice was now like it was in 1966. So he de-aged the voice and he added a part where it's now being sung by quote unquote John Lennon. And I got to tell you, it sounds just like him. And that's, and on the one hand, as an artist, I'm like, that's weird and that's wrong. And, you know, but on the other hand, I listened to it, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was, I couldn't quite turn it off um, because I was just so fascinated by it. In terms of producing original work, it seems that they're doing that already. Um, I, Right. For the moment, I don't think AI is producing anything that really stands up in um, with really good, good writing. I mean, I, I think the most you can do is, is do passable hack work. Um, but I also am terrified at the exponential uh, exponentiality of, of how the iterations uh, spawn so quickly that in just a year or two, I think we could be they could be doing tremendously great work. Um I'd like to be sort of a romantic and think that any real literature worth anything tells you something fundamental or uh, resonates with you on a fundamental level about something about being human and feeling uh, alone. I think C.S. Lewis, I think, who said, we read to know that we're not alone. And to me, the big draw of theater, as, as opposed to any, all the other mediums, is that it's a communal experience. I mean, so are movies, right? But movies are, are dia, dia, uh, not a dialogue, they're a monologue. It's the actors doing it, the audience reacts. But in the theater, it's a dialectic, right? It's a feedback loop because the, the actors do respond to the audience and that affects them. And, and so it's a sort of dialogue. And, that, and to me, one of the big issues in, I think, in the world, certainly in the Western world, and certainly in America, is loneliness, like a feeling of you know isolation and alienation. And I think that we should grab hold of any tools we can that will combat that. And I do think plays and theater, um, even if it's streaming, I think that the work inevitably is a, about a communal experience. So I don't think AI can really ever get to that. I mean, I hope, you know what, I hope they can, because if it can, then it suggests to me that we're far more predictable as, as, as creatures than we'd like to think. And I think there's a degree to which that is true, but there has to be a heart to it, a heartbeat to it that we will respond to and that will resonate with us. And I, 
I don't know that science can come up with that. Um, having said that, I don't know what I'm talking about with AI, <laughs> you know, but the idea of, but I, but I have to believe that there's something irreducibly human in, the, in, in really good art that is going to be, uh, you know, unreproducible. Um, and, and that, you know, maybe I'm being too romantic about it, but I, I do believe that. Well, I mean, what do you guys think? What do you, what, what well, do you I do think that, I think an NFT is not going to replace a Picasso. Right. Right. Okay. So, right. So, so I think that like it's an interesting thing. I I asked you because as a writer, and you know, there's a there's a strike going on with the writers in um, mm. Hollywood right now, and yeah, uh, I I I think it's exciting and terrifying at the same time. And I think yeah. for all of the reasons that I I I should be utilized for the good, it should be used for the good, and then all the things that are kind of cannot should be for the bad should be left aside and it's up to us to navigate that that's my thought and yeah. i think that you know if ai can suddenly start to perform surgeries that are not possible before because of technology and things like that if it can you know you can right. envisage a uh, scenic design and then have them draw all of the uh uh right. ai draw all of this the construction drawings for you you could say oh, i love that right so so i think i think i think theater has to look at it in a way of how can it provide opportunity for people Mm. to create community and be more creative and have more time and money to stay together and hang out together than spending Mm. money on production aspects that you and then yeah i i'm not negating the fact that you might remove a um construction drawings job and, and and other other jobs but Again, mm. lean into the, the the putting the money where you can have humans together. I, I saw something mm. on social media, um, which I really loved. It was just like a quote that scrolled past me. It's like, we don't need AI to make art. We need AI to do everything else so we can make more art. And mm. I like that, you know. And that so I, I, feel, I feel like we just need to guide it in that direction. And so I, I look for it myself for things to make my life more efficient i was on Mm. chat gpt to help me do a google google sheets formula that i couldn't figure out yesterday and it helped me and if that gives me 10 15 more minutes with my children at the end of the day rather than me googling it and trying to figure it out myself then i'll take it right (laughs) so uh that's that's my thing but the writing thing is is an interesting niche because uh, and again, I might go on it too much. There was a, a thing that they did a while ago. They showed the computer like a hundred uh, horror movies, and um, mm. and then mm. they showed them a trailer of all those horror movies. And then they made a new movie, and they said, "Make a trailer for this horror movie." And it just did it because it had got its its machine learning had learnt what are the key points right. of a horror movie to collect together. Mm. So, mm. I think the potential to write quality if you if you fed a computer all of the plays in the world and said write your own play i'm sure it could do it i'm sure it could do it but what does that mean and 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 how can we as humans resonate with that i don't know but it's something it's a a space to play in right now like you said it's not advanced enough for if you get something to write something for you you've still got to tweak it so maybe it's a way that writers can lean into that and say i want to write a dialogue about this and it generates it for you, and then you tweak it in a human sense to make it resonate. You know, I think that's the fast track. Yeah, maybe. maybe. And I'm, I, I, 
and I think everything I agree with everything you say. Um, the the last part of it, though, I got to say, makes me uneasy. Even like coming out with, it's not like coming up with say a spreadsheet or something. Um, uh, to me, it's you know, and I, again, I'm not. I haven't really started. I literally started wrestling with this question about two weeks ago because I'm I'm so behind <laughs> the curve of uh, of modern culture. But yeah, I mean, like to me, that is something that. Anything that purports to really explain the, the human experience, you know, art or philosophy or something like that, I, I'm very uncomfortable with AI getting involved in because it, it seems predicated on a type of consciousness and mm-hmm. awareness of that. And so eventually it will it'll have to have AI develop consciousness, which of course is the thing everyone's terrified of because soon we'll be all serving, you know, our computer overlords. Um, but I mean, <laughs> the thing you brought up earlier about Picasso is, you know, I don't think a computer um, back, you know, of course they didn't have my thing, but let's say as a thought experiment, I don't think a computer could have taken what had come before and, co- and then come up with Picasso. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, to me, like the, that leap, that imaginative leap um, uh, isn't something that it can do. And if it ever does develop to that point, then I think we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> bigger problems to worry about than art because then there's, you know, there's ethical implications too uh, of, well, if a, if, a, if a programmer AI is in fact develops a consciousness, um, it's, if it is then a conscious being, does it have rights? You know, does it have, I mean, is it right for us to use it as in a, a sort of enslavement? Um, mm. Which again... Oh, the- <laughs> yeah, that's, that is. Yeah, so big. so I want you know happy thought, but I mean that's something to. Um, I think that's that's an ethical consideration people are gonna have to wrestle with. If it gets that good, it, you know, if, in order to get this good, AI needs to develop something akin to what we would call consciousness. Um, I think that we're a long ways away from that. I mean, I, I'm not basing it on anything other than scientists and philosophers have for decades tried to struggle with what is, I think is called the hard problem, which is like, how, what is consciousness? And how does, and like, what's the leap to consciousness? And how, and how does one arrive at that physiologically and, and evolutionarily speaking? Um, so I'm a little... And where is it as well, right? I'm sorry? And where, is, and where is consciousness as well? Because there's a lot of debate it that it's not, even, it's not even here. It can be everywhere, right? So exactly. that's, that's and a that's fascinating it, yeah. topic. Yeah. So it is fascinating. And, um, you know, I guess if you want to be an optimist about it, you know, it can help us solve those sorts of problems by seeing how it develops. But uh, like anything else, I think it's a tool and, it, you know, it can be sort of used for good or bad. I, I think the worst case scenario worries for me is that, you know, someone is going to go too far with it. You know, it's just, you know, we, whether or not I'm okay with it or comfortable with AI in making art is couldn't be less relevant because some people are going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's there whether we like it or not. Right. But I think that's why I think like the artists and the philosophers and the psychologists, everybody needs to be involved in this. Like it can't just let the tech Mm. go and run. Right. Like I think that it's not going away whether we like it or not. So it's good that you're starting to think about it because I think that, people with opinions and, and, and who create yeah. art need to be involved in this evolution. Otherwise it, it, it might go in a direction that that's not, not productive. Well, if you notice during this brief discussion, I've become more and more fetal in my position. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's, it yeah. really is an overwhelming topic because it's so, like you said, the, the speed at which it moves is just incredible. And every day I'm yeah. seeing stuff that's like online that's like this and this and this and this. It's like I, I, I can't, I literally can't keep up with how fast this is moving, you know. Yeah, I can't. I can't program my video, uh, my my DVR. You know, I mean, I'm, I get into fights with all sorts of technology. You know, uh, my blender. I, you know, I'm not good with it. And so now to think that there's a, something that can like control me, but that I can control it. I mean, I I'd like to keep that in the domain of my romantic relationships. If I, can't be... <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> I love it, Anna, that you said that um, they should take us into consideration. Since when? Since when are artists? Well, I guess at yeah, some point sure. they were, but <laughs> they were long not being considered for anything in the world. That's, that's so true, Anna. That's so true. But, you know, I think, too, of something, uh, I think Wald Whitman said, Whitman, I think he was one of the first people to really vocalize this. And by the way, a fellow uh, Long Islander like I am, um, you know, he argued that literature and art was actually more important than government, which I, I think is an overstatement to be sure. But his point was that what do we, what do we remember from most cultures? Inevitably it's the art, inevitably it's the literature um, that stays with us more. And so I think that's, so I think in the long term, like I think we are represented to future generations more by art than are by the momentary political squabbles that dominate our everyday lives. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, I think that's how we process what we're going through politically oh, yeah. and socially. And this is something where I don't know how much AI, because right now, today, AI is just an average of what's out there already. There's mm. not really a creative input. There's like a shuffling average. This is what, yeah. what you get, right? right. Um, so... I don't know how it's going to be later on. I think it's like Asana was mm. saying, every day is faster and because it's an exponential thing and it learns on right. itself. So mm. I don't know what's going to be and how we're going to keep up with that. But at yeah. the end of the day, what we do as artists is to, to reflect and to process our day-to-days and that's how we contribute to society so they can also sit down and reflect with us and understand or run away, whatever the, <laughs> the choice of the day is. Right. But I don't know that's yeah. something that AI can do just now, today. <laughs> right. Although tomorrow. Yeah, and to be to be devil's advocate about it, though, you know, like when we dream, for example, we have these very creative dreams, you know, that sometimes are fascinating, and although we make up, they're often bizarre and don't hold to cohere. But, you know, when you dream something, there's nothing that you can dream that isn't, doesn't exist already in your mind in some, in some form or fashion. And it just throws all these different patterns together. Um, and, you know, so you could argue that very little art ever comes about out of whole cloth. It's always influenced in, in like a different confluence of things that have happened in the past, which is what scares the heck out of me about, about AI to be sure. But I do, I do agree with you that, you know, it's, I think, like I was saying earlier, uh, that I think you could probably write, you know, hack work. Like, in other words, like you could plug in and say, okay, we need a mediocre sitcom, you know, uh, about someone, you know, uh, you know, has to, yeah, I mean, here's a typical plot point, deliver it. And my guess is it probably could. But the stuff that's going to sort of take your breath away and the stuff that's going to make you move you and the stuff that's going to 
make you understand yourself and, and feel more, you know, make you think and feel more alive or connected or more joyful or you name it. I like to think that that is, um, I'm just hubristic enough to think that that's something that only humans can do. Yeah. And I think also just from the mere fact that a theatrical production is a combination of a number of people coming together with their different right. skill sets through a human experience. And that is really difficult to uh, replace. For example, you're in tech mm-hmm. and you've got a lighting designer and a programmer and a director and the actors on stage and you've got all of these things that, like, that tangibly cannot be, and magic happens in those moments when you figure out that yes. the light going on that place and the actor saying this at this moment with the director saying step turn that way so you look you know those those that's such a human aspect of yes. the, at that theatrical experience that then people watch AI cannot replicate that lighting designer and the director and the actor and the and the perceive, person who's perceiving that yeah. so in that sense I agree I mean certainly even, yeah yeah so go ahead no no no. you go you're on a no, roll so i'm just saying that that's that when i think about the if anything it, it probably in the long term yes maybe all of that film and screen and screen screen stuff can be all ai done but the live theatrical thing might be our final frontier that it can't penetrate when you think it about might it be, right i mean well let me maybe ai isn't so bad after all uh, <laughs> no, i mean you know, maybe it would be ironic if we have to we go back to basically where the greeks were you know and you're right because it's it's there's something i mean just just the pragmatics of it i mean you know, you're not you're not going to get animatronic actors. You know, it's uh, at least I hope not yet. And um, there it, there is something sort of really wonderfully human about being a part of an audience or being on stage in a play because it is like I said, it's a dialogue. I mean, the length, the lines are the same. The you know, the movements are the same usually every night, but every night is a different performance, mm. and that's because there's a there's literally tens of that probably tens of millions of uh, variables that go into the equation. Every single member of the audience is a variable and what the actors ate last night and like who, who didn't get a good night's sleep and who's fighting with their spouse and all these things <laughs> combined sometimes all at once um and so you know they all combine and to create something that's sort of um unrepeatable it's the unrepeatability of theater i think that that's is right. great and also frustrating time at times for actors and and, and, and everyone else involved too but it, to me it's that sort of it's it's close to its essence is that unrepeatability. Mm, mm. Which is, I guess, what AI is not mm. and with what yes. AI is not aiming to do. Because yeah. technology no, is all about rep- repetitibility. Repetitibility, repeatability, yeah. Rep- yeah. <laughs> Repeating things over and over. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just made up but, unrepeatability. I'm pretty sure it's not an actual word. <laughs> in language, but, um, I like it. Uh, I think... Yeah. I think we do have it in Spanish, but um, uh, irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's a good point that, that it's, it goes against like what we're trying to do and what we do on a date or a night to night basis mm. on a stage is different to what technology is trying to achieve, which is optimize the process and be able mm. to replicate the process every time. That's so true. Because, I mean, having a different experience every night in a theater and a, you know, in a play is incredibly inefficient but and i would think technology want uh, privileges efficiency and its inefficiency is part of its magic you know it's part of its its fun uh and 
Yeah, I, I think that the, the most of the things that see theatric theater brings, I don't think AI can can replicate. And I'm hoping hoping that applies to the scripts too, <laughs> because then I'm out of a job. Um, but yeah, I think that <laughs> I, I think it is. You know, I was talking about streaming theater sort of being like the wild west and the new frontier, and it is. But man, I'm talking about the ultimate new frontier. Um, you know, I'm very curious to. Um, listen to this podcast, you know, like say 10 years from now when it's in the, you know, they put it in the Smithsonian. Uh, Cause I think that's what you do. You pick up physical podcasts and you put them in the museum. If I understand podcasting, right. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure I do um, to see how, how much of it has, has come to fruition and how hopefully we've, we've tamed it, I guess is a word to use maybe, or, or, or maybe see taming implies consciousness um, that we've um, channeled it, I think into more productive means. Well, I'm saying it right here now that we've decided collectively on the, what date is it? The 10th of May in 2023, theatre is not dead yet. (laughs) No, not dead yet. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a future for it. I'm I'm an optimist and so is Anna, so this is good. So, Jack, we we always finish uh, our podcast with the two same questions, so we're going to ask these two questions of you now. What's your most favourite thing about your job or the industry? Industry. I don't have many favorite things about the industry, um, but I have a lot of favorite things about my job. And it's actually a surprisingly easy question for me to answer. It's uh, being in the room with uh, actors and designers and directors whom I um, trust and like and admire, and we're working out, we're working things out. We're figuring out how to tell the story, um, and to be in a room collaborating with people is, um, I mean, it's, you know, I get weak in the knees thinking about that. Amazing. It's funny. It's a very similar answer to one we got maybe two or three weeks ago. Oh, well, maybe it's the right answer. Maybe I won. (laughs) But I playwright, this is about being a playwright. For me, it's a perfect mix of things because I do like my alone time. Right. And so writers need to be alone. So I have time alone, but then I can bring it and then we collaborate. I mean, and so I like being part of that community too. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a director, but yeah, usually people tend to say people just in general. And you guys were very specific on which moment with the people doing what. And it's, yeah. Yeah. And it's that creative moment and spark with. Yeah. It's wonderful. And to share, you know, it's about, there's so many, there are so few opportunities, I think, these days to really feel truly connected to other people and that's one of the one of the moments you can do it Mm. so on the flip side what would you change if you could change anything either about your job or the industry well i mean apart from my um my my lack of of tony awards and uh you know and pulitzer prizes i would i think in all seriousness i would uh, i i would actually want theater to be um, more accessible, um, not just geographically, but certainly in terms of price. And uh, I would, I would like in America there to be a the organ an organization or the, the infrastructure for a sort of national theater, which of course, you know, America doesn't have. Say, like in in, in Britain, there's you know obviously the national theater and. Um, is there one in Australia? I'm assuming there was in Australia too. That there's there's na- big government funding in yes. uh, in most countries, I think, for the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, in America, that is not the case. So I can say that as an American, I would love that because that would 
not only um, bring out really great writers and uh, artists and actors and and um, sort of just spread them around the country, you know. So I mean, we had that in America during sort of in the during the New Deal of Ro- Franklin Roosevelt during the Depression. Um, I would love it if you know a government funded. Uh, professional theaters were in like every state, you know, and um, it would give people a chance to not only work as an actor, to earn a living uh, as an actor or playwright or you know, play director, which is virtually impossible to do. And it would also expose people to to stuff that I think is really worthwhile. Oh, that's a wonderful uh, want and wish for, for, for America. I really love that. Jack, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. We got very philosophical in this uh, in this podcast, and we love when we get that. We love that um, from AI to Shakespeare. Well, I, I, it's been a perfect a conversation. <laughs> yes, well, thank you so much. And this was a, a real pleasure, and uh, had a great time talking with both of you. Thanks for coming. <laughs> thank and just uh, as a re- quick recap, where can people see your place on YouTube and listen to your podcast? Uh, well, they can, and indeed should. Uh, go to uh, any podcast platform and uh, just type a new normal rep uh, in step nine, the number nine, and that will take them to their uh, to the radio play. They can go to YouTube and type in new normal rep, and we have our own page. You can also go to our website to give you a full uh, menu of things that we have out there at www.newnormalrep.org. Uh, and if you know, you know, if you want to read any of my plays, I have a couple of plays out on Amazon that you should everyone should probably buy ten copies of just in case they want to do play it in their living rooms on the Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Jack. You. Thank Thanks you so much. Us.